Hi there, my name is Adam Waters and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture is from Mark 1, verses 9 through 13, and it's page 990 if you're using a pew Bible. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Let me sum it up for you. Young lady and man in a roller coaster, they climb to the top slowly, they descend, and he passes out screaming. Okay? All right. I hate roller coasters. I hate roller coasters. On TikTok, you know, when you're flipping through TikTok, whatever you look most at, it comes up in your feed. So you begin seeing more and more of that. For some reason, this algorithm thinks that I should be seeing more of the thing I hate. Roller coasters. I don't make this judgment without evidence either. This is something that I know all too well. I was on a roller coaster one time. It was the Batman ride at Great America here in Gurney, okay? It was in high school, and I remember them pressuring me to get on, and I just didn't want to do it. I was terrified. I thought, why would I want to have a near-death experience? But they continued to push me to it, and I got into the car, and I remember the slow climb and the anxiety of trying to look tough in front of my friends, and undoubtedly a young lady who was there who I was trying to impress. And as we were climbing, there was growing and building fear until I reached the summit of the climb. I was able to look around and see all of Northern Illinois and its beautiful grandeur. And it was this moment where the G-forces were at a perfect balance. I was neither being pulled down from behind or being pulled forward from above, from this way. I was able to just sit at this moment of perfect equilibrium. And I looked out and I saw how beautiful it was, but as soon as I had reached that mountaintop moment, I felt gravity begin its awful tug. And I knew I had made a mistake. <laughs> the second clue, the second piece of evidence that uh, that informs my opinion on roller coasters is the fact that when I got in and I sat down, uh, it, something didn't feel right when the thing came down and the thing clicked. Now, those of you who are on roller coasters are probably accustomed to it. You know that this is somewhat normal. It doesn't feel like you're locked into a fighter jet. It, there, it feels a little bit loose. This was different. This was different. As I began to fall and I felt the anti-gravity lifting me out of my seat, realizing that I was not strapped in as tightly as I wanted to be, my life, literally, I don't say this metaphorically, literally, my 16 short years flashed before my eyes as I was convinced that I was going to get sucked out into the abyss at every 70 mile an hour turn we took. Now, I make jokes about this, but, you know, life is like a roller coaster sometimes. 
I mean, think about it. We lament this, and in, in, in people that we lament this and believe that something must be wrong with us or the world because it shouldn't be this way, should it? It shouldn't feel like we're having these moments where we're getting closer and closer to the Lord, and then suddenly it feels like the bottom drop out. I have some people I talk to, and often I'll hear something like, they'll call, and I'll see their name, and I'll know that something's happened just because. Hey, hello? You're not going to believe what happened to me now, right? Another bottom drops out. Another moment of descent into a spiritual low. Maybe you feel like this. Maybe you feel like as soon as you work and work and work and make the climb closer to God, no sooner do you get there that it feels like the bottom drops out and you go diving off into a scary unknown. You know, just as soon as you get control of something, you wrestle something into place and make it exactly the way you want it, all of your work suddenly comes undone. But I'm here to tell you, that a godly, normal, and healthy Christian walk often resembles a roller coaster. Often resembles a roller coaster. We don't always see this, though, do we? I don't think we do. I don't all the time. I mean, we might get it later when we look back on the situation. I mean, I've heard it said that, you know, life is lived looking forward but understood looking backwards. It's the same kind of idea. When we're in the moment, it feels like something's terribly wrong and we'll never learn a lesson. But when we look back on our life and, and what had happened, we realize that we uh, actually did grow through it. We sometimes say to ourselves, why me? How can this be fair? Or what did I do to deserve this? This is my favorite. I must be being punished by God. And then we work feverishly to look at every aspect of our life to try to determine what is the thing, that behavior, that thought, that choice, that God is now punishing me for in this morning's text, we'll see some two brief accounts, really, of uh, very important events in the life of Christ, his baptism and his temptation. As we look at these texts, I want you to consider your own life and how these accounts might show a pattern in the way your life has been lately. So let's look at starting at verse 9. We're in Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So remember, last week, John's out there. Everyone from Judean countryside, everyone from Jerusalem are coming. They're being baptized in the Jordan. And Jesus comes as well. This is about 65 miles from Nazareth. So he walked four or five days if he came from Nazareth in order to be baptized by John. This begs a very important question, at least for me. Why was Jesus baptized? I mean, we read last week that this was a baptism unto repentance. Repentance means to change one's mind after one has sinned. So if Jesus never sinned, why is Jesus being baptized at all? Matthew tells us in chapter 3, that 3 or 4, that, that John didn't want to do it. That when Jesus showed up, John said, it should be you who baptizes me. I'm not going to do this. And Jesus says, it is necessary that all righteousness be fulfilled. And it says that John finally relented and baptized Jesus. You see, this was not a requirement in the Old Testament. So what was Jesus talking about when he said that it fulfilled all righteousness? Well, I believe it's the fulfillment of the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Repentance, specifically as, it describes, as it's described by, John, by Mark here in this account, describes the idea of willing submission to the Lord. You see, we look at repentance as being a changed mind. We've done something wrong. We believe something incorrectly. We recognize that God is saying something different. 
And so it's us making the determination in our heart to say what we've thought or believed or did is wrong and what God wants us to do, God's will, is right. It's metanoia. It's the Greek word that means to change one's mind, to go the other direction. Jesus, of course, had never sinned. So what Jesus must be doing is displaying an act of submission, simply just saying the God is right part, not the I am wrong part. We bring the I am wrong part because we're sinners and because we're wrong. Jesus is declaring that God is right. He's submitting to the Father as he did for eternity. What we see here is something of the action or or the evidence of what the Trinity looked like for eternity past, eternal submission of the Son to the Father. In verse, nine, in verse 10, it says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's a beautiful demonstration. It's a beautiful picture right now of the Trinity in action. We see all three members of the Trinity here. We see the eternal Son, as I said, made man in submission to the Father. This is Jesus coming out of the water, being baptized, fulfilling all righteousness. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son from the Father in the form of a dove. And we see the Father declaring his approval of Jesus. What is said here of Jesus is also true of us when we submit to the Lord. When we have faith in Jesus Christ and we are are cleansed of our sins, when the Father looks upon us, he says, Behold, my beloved child, with whom I am well pleased. Because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and he lived the perfect life on our behalf and his action, his obedience, and his behavior is accredited to our account, the Father looks upon us like this. This is one of the most astounding truths of the word of God to me. We talk about our forgiveness a whole lot. We talk about our forgiveness as being the atoning death of Christ on the cross and because he paid the sacri- He was a sacrifice and paid the price for our forgiveness, We are saved, and this is true. But there's a second half to this that we often fail to recognize. The second half being that Jesus' life, his obedience to the Father, is then credited to our account. And that as we walk through this world, as we serve the Lord, as we live for Jesus, God the Father looks upon us and says, My perfect child. My perfect child. We apprehend that approval because of what Jesus has done by faith. Can you imagine being here? Now, this was surrounded by people watching. They heard the voice of God. They saw the form of the dove. They saw Jesus coming out. The person who John had just declared, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who would take away the sins of the world. This is a moment of tantamount importance. Can you imagine the spiritual high? Think about it from Jesus' perspective. He walks to the water. He asks for baptism. John says, I'm not going to baptize you. It should be you who baptize me. I'm not worthy to even take your shoes off. Jesus says, no, it's important that all righteousness be fulfilled. And so I want you to baptize me. John puts him down into the water. 
And as he comes out of the water, it says, as he ascends out of the water, he sees the dove descending upon him. And Luca tells us that while he saw the dove, he was praying. If we put all of this together, it says that Jesus was put in the water, and as he was coming out, he's praying to the Lord. He comes up, he looks up into the heavens, he sees them torn open, and the dove come out. The Spirit descend upon him. He was praying while he was being baptized. This is sort of a corollary here, sort of a, a tangent, but what do you do when you're worshiping? What are you thinking about? Sometimes uh, Michael and Aaron will play beautiful interludes of music. And I fear that sometimes we sit and twiddle our thumbs and wait for the singing to start again. Or we'll say, wow, what a well-done musical piece right here. That's beautiful. I'd encourage each and every one of you during that moment to be reconnecting with God instead of the lyrics. With God instead of the music. When we have those moments where there's a musical interlude, say, Lord, I'm here, and I know you are here too. Lord, be with me. Open my ears that I can hear your truth. Let me to see your beauty in a different way today. Show me how I can serve you in my life. This is a spiritual, we'll call it mountaintop, moment. When I was in Japan, uh, we, I was part of the headquarters element of our unit. So there's about 150 people. I was the senior doc, they called us. And so I was always with uh, the executive officer, sometimes with the commanding officer, as well as with the command element. And uh, it being with the command element, you know, Marine officers lead by the way they live. In, in other words, that they are more than willing to do anything they ask their most junior private to do. And so I got up one day and the CO called me, commanding officer, said, Doc, we're going up Fuji tomorrow. So we're on, on mainland Japan, we're going to climb Mount Fuji. He says, uh, but you're with me and we're going to make it to the top first. And we're going to wear packs and we're going to wear our camis and we're going to be in combat boots. Yes, sir, because that's what you do. Yes, sir. I bet you I'll beat you there, sir. Yeah, okay, so there's banter going back and forth. Next morning shows up. We get up still dark. We all are in our camis. Everyone's complaining because they have to be in uniform to be off base to climb up this, this mountain. And they are uh, none too happy. And so we, we get to the starting point, and we begin to climb. And as we're climbing, we're, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. There's a well-worn trail. Thousands of years, people have ascended this mountain as a place of spiritual connection in the religion of Shinto religion, okay? And so we're climbing up this mountain, and we're big, bad Marines. Of course, I'm in the Navy, but I, I, I walked, talked, thought. I was a Marine. I was a Marine, okay? Where they had a rifle, I had a, a syringe. I was shooting people with that. So um, we're climbing, and it's exhausting, exhausting and I thought wow and these little Japanese kids in flip-flops like running past us like it's nothing and I'm like we're supposed to be the elite fighting force of the world and this is the well, look at the little old ladies walking up they even have oxygen stops that you can stop and pay 20 bucks for a canister like 10 breaths of pure oxygen so you can make it up and so we, we get all the way to the, we start getting to the top and we go through clouds and it becomes like the most foggiest fog I've ever been in. But we just keep walking up the trail, you can't see anything. And what was so amazing is at this one moment, it felt like just within the course of a few steps, you went from being completely in fog to above the cloud line, looking, seeing the remainder of the peak, which is not much further, but looking out 
all around you and seeing nothing but the tops of clouds as if you were in a plane. We walked through it. It was awesome. It was awesome. And then we, we get to the top. And when we're at the top, the sun's now up. There's this you know, Shinto shrine. There's things going on up there. And it's just breathtaking. The clouds move out. You can see for 20, 30, 40 miles over the lush green Japanese countryside. Amazing. It's beautiful. This brings us to our first principle that we really need to understand is that submission to God's will often precipitates a spiritual high. Walking through, we'll call my CO God, <laughs> walking to my CO's will through that moment brought me to a place of a spiritual high. Sometimes I look back on my life and I, want, I wish I were a Christian when I went through some of the experiences that I had. Totally different message I would have gotten when I was there. Submission to God's will often precipitates a spiritual high. You see, submission to God requires the denial of self, the death of self, and relegating our own will to God's will. This is painful and this is hard. But this is what we are called to do in every aspect of our life. Every aspect. Submit to the will of God. It's like getting in the roller coaster. My friends were like, come on. It's going to be awesome. I did not want to get in that roller coaster. I did not. They're saying it's going to be so cool. My friends thought it was for my own good. My friends were wrong. It was not for my own good. But I went anyway. I relegated my will to the pressure of my friends. Now, God is never wrong. When God tells you get in the roller coaster, it's going to be awesome. When God tells you to get in the roller coaster and says, on the other side, you will be a better person, more Christ-like person as a result of it. These are always terrifying propositions. God's telling you to get in a roller coaster. God has a plan for you. He's going to grow you through what is about to happen. But we need to submit to his will over ours and get in. That spiritual high comes often after only a very long and hard ascent. The spiritual high may not always come immediately upon the heels of submission. It's not like, you know, God's telling us to deny ourselves. We deny ourselves, and then suddenly we're like, well, where's my blessing? I thought I was going to get a blessing out of this. It may not appear for a long time later, but we do it anyway. Because as we trust God, as we submit, we're building something of potential spiritual energy. As that roller coaster is climbing, there's potential energy being built until it reaches the apex. God is intending to grow us and prepare us for what is about to happen. In my experience, the denial of self and submission to God, while usually difficult in the moment, will bring moments later of spiritual lightness, joy, and freedom. But we've got to get in the roller coaster. Sadly, these spiritual summits are short-lived. I mean, we can't live there. I know there are times when, you know, for good examples, when I was in Israel, I told Lane, I called her from the Western Wall, which is a no-no. You shouldn't do that, using technology while there. And I called her, and I was, like, so overwhelmed with emotion. I still get it even when I think about it. I was praying for you guys. I was praying for her. I was praying for anyone I could think of. I'm like, I'm only going to be here one time. Somehow God's more present there than he is anywhere else. I need to pray for everybody right now. And I remember telling Lane that if we lived in Israel Friday night, 
I would never go out, I would never go, hardly things are open, but I would never want to go anywhere other than the western wall of the temple complex. It was this moment of spiritual lightness that I didn't ever want to leave, but you can't live there. There's no place to stay. You can only go for periods of time because God has other plans for you. Look at verse 12. Just as Jesus gets done being baptized, he's coming out of the water, he's having this mountaintop moment. It says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. At once. We talk about Mark's using the word immediately. This is one of them. Immediately, just as soon as he comes out of the water, the Spirit descends, God's voice comes out, this mountaintop, Spirit drives him into the woods, into the wilderness, into the desert. Matthew and Luke, in this account, use two different words to describe what the Spirit does to Jesus. Um, they both have this sort of idea that, that they, he was leading Jesus into the desert. One's a little bit stronger. I think use, Luke uses more of like a, a dragging someone before the court or bringing someone before for judgment, leading them out, right? Mark uses a, a word, ekbalo, all right, which is notable in this instance because it means, well, it's the same word that's used for casting out demons. The spirit casts Jesus forcefully into the wilderness immediately following his baptism. And what's even more beautiful in this passage when you understand it is it doesn't show it in the, uh, the English, is that Mark uses something called a historical present. He uses a present tense verb to describe something in the past. We do this all the time. Imagine we're telling a scary story to somebody and we're like, and she goes to the window and she slowly opens the window, right? Mark is drawing our attention to this dramatic point by saying, and the Spirit casts Jesus into the desert, into the wilderness. This is an aggressive word here. When we're struggling in our own life after a mountaintop moment, it's because the Spirit has put us there, has cast us there, has driven us there. It says in 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, the participle here, this being tempted by, is actually called a telic participle. Now, why do I tell you this? Because this is part of the, the beauty of being able, of having, I want you to utilize me as a resource. Okay, because this is an opportunity for you to get a glimpse into what is written in the original scripture without losing it in the English translation. This is a telic participle. This means that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted. That is revolutionary for us. That after we have a close moment with God and we say, Oh, I'm all in, I am here to stay. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about. Next day, it feels like it's gone. Something happens. Someone says something, and everything's out the window immediately. The Spirit has cast you where you are. I don't know where you are in this roller coaster scheme, but if you're on the downslope, the Spirit's put you there for a reason to be tested, to be tempted, to be worked into the image of Christ. It's one thing to be tempted by Satan. It's an entirely different matter when we recognize that Jesus was there for that specific purpose. 
Our second point from this morning is following spiritual highs, you can expect a spiritual low. Just as we climb the roller coaster, and we get to that top of equilibrium, that mountaintop moment, as surely as we get to there, we have to come down. And we often come down fast and hard. When we're walking with the Lord, you can expect a time of temptation or spiritual warfare following these high points. In Matthew 4, the, the parallel account of this, this is where Satan tempts Jesus with at least three specific areas. The first one was physical nourishment. He's saying, if you're the son of God, make these stones, turn them into bread. Remember, he's in there for 40 days and he's fasting. He's starving. He's hungry. Turn these rocks into pieces of bread. And Jesus says, we don't live by bread alone. What Satan is tempting him to do is to make it happen for himself. God's not providing for you. You, if you can do it, do it. If you can make it happen, make it happen. He's inviting Jesus to take control of the situation. Not only that, he brings him to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, throw yourself off. If you're the son of God, you'll be protected. What Satan is tempting Jesus with here is the idea that if you're really the son of God, nothing will happen to you. Now, this might get lost on us, but this applies to our life. Think about it. We're a church that believes in the eternal security of our salvation, that we believe of, our, of us. That, mean, that means that when, once we're saved and truly saved, we will stay saved, which is a biblical truth. The problem with this, if we misunderstand it and let a, allow our sin nature to take advantage of this, is we say, when we're being tempted, I'll come out all right on the other end. Jesus has promised that once I'm saved, I will remain saved. I'll just do this one thing and, and we'll, we'll fix it up and I'll talk to him afterwards. This is not the life that God is asking us to live. And this is what Satan was tempting Jesus with. It'll be okay. It's going to be fine. The third is glory. He says, all of these kingdoms will be given to me. They're mine to give, and I'll give them to you. It's interesting here is the grammar of Satan saying, I will surely give it to you. He was, it seems like he wasn't lying. That if Jesus really stooped down and worshipped Satan, that Satan would give him all the kingdoms of the world. He's tempting him with glory. And we get tempted like this too. Something along the lines of, I don't know how to say it in any other parlance than what I would say, but it's going to be awesome. You'll feel so fulfilled. Why was Jesus tempted? If Jesus was cast out there for the purpose of temptation, we see he was tempted. Why was he tempted? Well, Jesus was tempted and tested that we, that he should again exercise his will in choosing obedience and rejecting evil. Just as I said, he died for our sins, but lived for our righteousness. This is what I'm talking about. His being tempted and rejecting what Satan wanted, rejecting that temptation and being obedient to the Father no matter what is credited to our account. So thank you, Jesus, for doing this. We're seeing why we are declared righteous before the Father right here in the text. He was tempted to identify. Not only that, he was tempted to, so he could identify with humanity. I mean, Jesus knows our struggle. He really, really does. It's not limited to these three events. Satan, I'm sure, tempted him again and again and again because in um, Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Talking about Jesus. 
but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect. That means that Satan likely tempted Jesus, either in the wilderness or sometime along his life, with sexual temptation. That means that Satan likely tempted Jesus sometime in his life with a temptation to kill somebody, to smite somebody. Anger, jealousy, rage. Whatever it is you're struggling with, Jesus knows this temptation because he's lived through it. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, came through on the other end. And because of that, you can too. Your time of testing is not arbitrary or accidental. God has you there for a reason because he grows you through your obedience. I don't know how many times I've prayed in my life something like, Lord, change me and I'll be obedient. It doesn't work like that. God's not asking us to be, you know, it'd be easy to be obedient if we wanted to in the moment because we do it all the time. The things that are easy for us, yeah, I'll be obedient to that. It's the things we don't want to be obedient about. Those are where... That is where God grows us. God changes us through the denial of ourself and our obedience. So we can have faith that through the struggle, through the temptation, when I reject what I want and live for Christ, I will become the thing that he's asking me to become. But otherwise, it's putting the cart before the horse. Your testing, your struggle, this is normal. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Same word here, test. As though something strange were happening to you. Peter's saying, don't be surprised. This is the Christian walk. Just was texting with somebody yesterday. He says, I'm really living for the Lord, and man, am I being attacked. Yep, that's exactly right. The more you live for Christ, the more temptation, the more attack you can expect. For those who are living disobediently, whether or not a child of God or certainly not someone who's not saved, the spirit and the demonic forces of this world do not need to do anything to help you reject the Lord, to be disobedient. We're sort of on autopilot. When we trust the Lord and we're filled with his spirit and convicted of our sin, when we are living for Christ and being obedient and submissive, these, we are the people that the spiritual forces identify and target. We should expect this. Don't be caught off guard by your time of testing after a spiritual high. It's in these good moments. This is a key element here. This is really important for you to know. It's in these moments of good that we need to prepare for the moments of bad. Sometimes we live in these high top, these mountaintop moments and say, oh man, this is so great, never considering that this isn't going to stay like this. It's in those moments that we need to double down on our efforts in obedience to the Lord and prepare for the bad times. In the rest of this verse, he says, in Mark, he says, and he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Mark makes it a point to mention that he was with the wild animals. Why does he do that? A couple reasons, I think. Wild animals are totally dependent upon God for their sustenance and provision. Completely. Jesus used the sparrows. He says, consider the sparrows. They don't work for what they get. They don't need, God provides for them. And so Mark mentions that he was with the wild animals because of dependence. 
He was dependent upon them just like them. The other possibility, I think, is that it shows that he was in an otherwise dangerous position. He's out there, hungry, starving, in the wilderness, no one there to protect him, and there's wild animals. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be out there. I don't want to be out there. I don't know how, you know, our house is like in the wilderness. If there were a wilderness around here, right at the corner of North and 83, it's a wilderness. Many nights we hear things outside. And whether or not it's a coyote or an owl or a homeless person or what, I don't know. But there's things out there at night, I can assure you, okay? I don't like to go outside. Jesus was here vulnerable. Yet God protected the son. More than protected him, God ministered to him where he was. It says, and the angels attended him. You know, I think there's a better word here. Other translations use a word like this, but minister to him is probably the right word. The word here is the same word we get, the English word deacon. One who serves, one who ministers. The angels deaconed him, ministered to him. Jesus relied on God to provide and did not short-circuit God's will for him at that moment. Third and final point for this morning, remain submissive in your spiritual low while trusting God to carry you safely through it. Remain submissive. We've got to stay in the fight and struggle if we want to be there for growth. There are times that we will check out this video. This video. As soon as he comes over the top and begins to descend, he screams, passes out. His body is so overwhelmed with the fear of falling it shuts down. Well, we do this spiritually. We are so unhappy, fearful, scared, whatever, in these times of our spiritual descent or in the times of our testing that we check out. We seek to escape the fear, the pain, the uncertainty of the trial by you name it. We'll figure out a way to use it to distract us from our situation. Addiction. We have a hard time dealing with life on life's terms, so we use. Food. I eat my feelings often. I know some of you do too. We talk about it. it. Makes me wonder about churches that do so many potlucks. I love to eat, don't get me wrong. My mother is, you know, the hostess. We, we, we like to eat in this church. There is no question. And we don't want to eat, no, we want to eat good food. Because there's something special about sharing food with brothers and sisters. But something that's good can easily turn into something that's not good. Not good. How many of you, never mind. I'm so stressed out, I need chips. We distract ourselves, we check out with stuff. Our new car, our new home, our new TV, it does not matter. It does not matter. I saw a guy driving a Jeep. Actually, his, his, to be fair, it seemed like his little girl was driving the Jeep. She must have had her permit or brand new license or whatever. She was very young. He was in the passenger seat, and she was driving this super modified, had to be a $100,000 Jeep Wrangler. It had everything. It was awesome. And I drove away thinking, sorry, Calvin, there's no way I'd let my kid drive that thing. There's no way. But then I got to thinking, I wonder if that makes him happy. I wonder if searching the internet, finding these cool doors, these new exhaust things, I wonder if that makes him, does he really feel fulfilled because of that? I don't know. We find ways to amuse ourselves. You know, the word amuse means to not think. Let that one sink in for a while. Amuse means not think. 
We find ways to distract ourselves from our awful plight instead of embracing the moment and leaning into God in submission and saying, Lord, show me what it is. Scream all you want. It's okay. Cry out to God. Lord, help me. I hear that all the time. The reason I use this video is one of the only ones that I could play in church. We do not have control of our spiritual lows any more than we can stop a roller coaster from falling. What we do have control of is our perspective in the moment of our spiritual lows. We can choose to trust in God. In fact, this is what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Beautiful truth about this verse When we say he will make your path straight, we say, oh, it must be left and right. What this word means actually means up and down. He will level your ups and downs when we trust in the Lord and we lean not on our own understanding. Our response to trials and temptations indicates how well you are trusting God. When we respond with godly thoughts, behaviors, and attitudes over time, In the face of trials and temptations, the distance between our ups and downs gets further apart. Not only that, the highs and lows get closer together. But the overall trajectory goes up. So what do I mean by that? I look back on my life sometimes, especially when I'm in a period of struggle, and I think, man, I haven't learned anything. I'm like exactly where I was at the beginning. But when I stop and actually take stock, and I look at my own life, and I know I see it in some of you too, is that, yes, there are definitely ups and downs in the spiritual life. But when you take the macro view, it looks like this. So every time you hit a peak, you say, ooh, you know, this is great. Then we make this fall, and we say, oh, my gosh, I'm back to where I started. But this is where you started. This is where you started. We trust God with the ups and downs, leaning into him in obedience, and trust that, as he promised in Romans, he will make us into the image of Christ. He will grow us in Christ-likeness over time through our struggles. Now, many of you who have been on a roller coaster know that you stop where you started. You pull into the same little house, the place where I left in abject fear. I came back in abject fear. It's exactly the same place. But in the Christian walk, we, by God's action, end at a higher plane than where we began. Higher plane than when we began. Don't be deceived into thinking that God wants you right where you began. His intent is to grow you, which he does, but it's often impossible to see in the moment. Okay, conclusion. Three pieces that we talked about this morning. The first piece was submission to God's will often precipitates a spiritual high. Makes sense. You obey God, you feel good. There should be a moment where you feel close to God. Following the spiritual high is though, number two, we can expect a spiritual low. Expect. This is normal. Don't be surprised when this happens. Three, remain submissive in your spiritual low while trusting God to carry you safely through. Don't check out. Don't pass out when you're falling. Stay in the game, trusting God and staying focused on him. So you have a choice. You can see the roller coaster of life through the eyes of the flesh. Scream in terror, cry in fear, pass out and try to ignore the whole thing till it's over. Or you can choose to exercise your faith. You can hang on tight 
to the one who will carry you through until you're safely at rest on higher ground, where you'll be closer to the Lord, stronger in your walk, and ready for your next climb. Let's pray. Father, we all sit before you, Lord, asking for the grace to submit ourselves to your will in every area of our lives. We know, Lord, that uh, just as you cast your son into the wilderness to be tempted, that, Lord, you cast us into the wilderness to be tempted, even after moments of, of closeness with you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us and give us the, the grace to be merciful upon us that we, too, can live as Jesus lived during this temptation, focusing on you. We pray, Father, that you would build us into a body of believers that is ready for whatever ride you put us on. We pray, Lord, that we would be mothers and fathers of families who are ready for whatever ride you put us on. We pray, Lord, that you would make us people who are ready, Lord, and willing to go anywhere at any time for any purpose because it is your good and perfect will for our lives. And we will trust you to bring us safely through. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBC Elm. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbcelm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.